Well, good morning, y'all. You are the courageous ones getting here. We're just going to have ourselves a little fireside chat this morning, all right? Um, Today, I want to uh, continue in our series as we've been walking through the Bible, cover to cover, best we can. And really what we're trying to do is to help everyone to build a systematic theology that's based at looking at the Bible in its entirety, right, and showing how everything connects and fits together. And so right now, we're still kind of in the very beginning of the Old Testament. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Old Testament was written, it's, it's 39 separate books that was written over the span of thousands of years. And um, the first section that we're in right now is what we call the Pentateuch. Pentateuch is a Greek word meaning five scrolls, and it refers to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Probably some of the driest material that you will ever read in your life, right? So a lot of, this is where like, a lot of people say, oh, I'm going to like, read through the Bible, and they start with Genesis, and they, you know, by Deuteronomy, they're like, I'm tapping out on this thing. It's like crazy. And um, it is uh, historically believed that Moses... Um, wrote most of the Pentateuch with his protege, uh, Joshua. And so it's in these five books that we read about, you know, the creation of the world, uh, Cain killing his brother, uh, Abraham and Isaac, uh, Tower of Babel, Moses and the Ten Commandments, all that stuff is kind of strewn in the midst of some very dry stuff, and it creates for kind of a, a rich history. But what we find, really, in these first five books is the beginning of mankind. And so as we'll see, like when we get into the law, like this is the establishment of civilization. And you go, wow, there's some crazy stuff, but it was creating some hardline laws that were created to, to bring order into a chaotic civilization. So today we're in uh, Genesis chapter 6 through 9, and I think we have the timeline here, so we put this little kind of journey through the Bible together that we're going to do. So we've done creation and the fall of man, and today is this kind of very simple uh, kid story that, has everybody heard it, you know, from Noah and the Ark? Everybody, like, know the story of Noah and the Ark? All right. So you remember how there was a great flood, and Noah brought the animals into the Ark, what? Two by two, thank you. And, um, you know, we all think of it as a very cute um, children's story, and we love to have, you know, the Noah and the Ark wallpaper in the nursery for our kids and our kids playing with Noah and the Ark toys. Um, But this is one of those stories that the church tends to gloss over and would really like to keep it as a cute kid story because it's so not. And the reality is that it's just one of the most difficult stories in the Bible to even comprehend. So in Genesis chapter 6, starting with verse 5, it says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. I'm going to bring floodwaters, God said, to the earth and destroy all life under heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on the earth will perish. God's 
patience for the evil of mankind, it seems, has worn thin. And if you listen closely, you can hear the faint sound of thunder rumbling as there is a pretty bad storm brewing out in the distance. Uh, you know, growing up as a uh, pastor's kid, um, and I grew up as a son of an inner city pastor, which means we were extraordinarily poor, uh, I uh, was so excited to be able to go to the movies at someday, and so I'll never forget when my parents told me that they were going to take me to my first movie. It was 1976. I was nine years old, and so they finally say, okay, here, here's what we're going to go see, and it was in search of Noah's Ark. It was a documentary about the archaeology of trying to discover. Yeah, there we go. There it is. In search of Noah's Ark. That was that was me. No Charlie in the Chocolate Factory for me that year. Um, but what was cool was because it was a documentary, it really kind of made the story of Noah and the Ark uh, real for me. Um, however. As I grew older, for whatever reason, because uh, I grew up in such a strong family of faith, but um, I'm, I'm just like a really raging skeptic. And um, so I have to tell you, this is by far the most difficult story in the Bible for me to accept. I mean, <laughs> this is so implausible from beginning to end. I literally, like, I wrote this message on the plane this week. I had it mostly done, and so I was kind of chill yesterday, and I told my wife, I said, I got another hour into it or whatever, and, like, I start just kind of getting into it. And, man, I hit this, like, faith crisis in the midst of this message. I go, how can I even get up there on stage and, like, teach this, like, thing? And, And I just fell into this state of existential despair, and so... That's why you've driven through the snow this morning to, to be with me as I um, communicate this to you. So, you know, let's set aside the fact that Noah was 600 years old. Let's just accept that. Let's just accept the fact that two of every kind of every animal on the earth fit into this boat, all right? Or that there was a flood that was big enough to cover the entire earth. Let's just say that all that is true. All the crazy stuff aside, the part that gets me the most is this. While God saves Noah and his family, he completely annihilates the rest of mankind. Everybody. In order to wipe the slate clean, because he regretted ever having made mankind in the first place. Sounds a little harsh to me, doesn't it? The tough part of this story is how can the God that I worship, the God whom I believe with all my heart has saved my rear end from the pits of hell, the God that I know uh, loves me beyond belief, that this is a God of love and forgiveness and grace, how could my God do something as seemingly cruel as that. This is what we're going to work through this morning. All right? Exciting. 
Uh, I want to go back to verse 6, because verse 6, I think, is at the core of it, which is where it says that the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. All right, so this gets back to my question last week. I don't know if you were here or remember it, but I just asked the question, you know, is it, is it, do you think that it's really true that God loved us so much as, as his creation that he set forth in motion his plan for us to have eternal life right there in the Garden of Eden, right? I mean, he set the tree of life in the middle of the garden, and so eternal life was approachable for all of us. And do you think that he was so optimistic about us as his creation that he thought that none of us would ever screw up? Right, that none of us would ever partake of the forbidden fruit, that you or me, even in this generation, that we would have lived perfectly all of our lives so that we could live happily ever after in the Garden of Eden. Was this just some sort of big human experiment gone wrong? Very, very wrong, right? But from the fall of Adam and Eve, we see that mankind became increasingly evil. I mean, the next story after the fall is Cain killing his brother, Abel, because he's jealous. And from there, it just gets worse. And as a result, God's heart, it said, became deeply troubled. Now that phrase can also be translated to read that God's heart was deeply grieved which is a love word. I mean, when somebody hurts you so deeply, you lash out, right? You say and do things that seem a lot like anger, when in reality, it's the pain that is coming out in a seemingly angry way. You ever been in that position? And so this is a picture of God in this moment where he loves man so deeply. He so loves the world. But man hurts the heart of God so deeply that he lashes out in a really big way, right? And it makes me wonder, have I ever grieved the heart of God? I mean, there have been times in my life where I have been indifferent to God. There's been other times when I have been disobedient. And there's a point in my life where you could say that I lived in open rebellion against God. And I have to ask, what makes me any different than any other indifferent, disobedient person that was on the other side of the door of the ark when the rain begins to fall? We talked last week about the Imago Dei, that we were created in the image of God, and as such, we share characteristics with God himself, not in a physical way but in who we are at our core, and not the least of which is experiencing the hurt and pain of being hurt from the people that we love the most, right? I mean, you don't grieve in your heart for somebody that you don't care about. No one can hurt me like the people I love the most. And there are plenty of times when I am seemingly angry, when in reality, my heart hurts. I mean, there have been times when my boys were growing up that I would just grab them and hug them so tightly because if I wasn't hugging them, I would kill them. 
And it doesn't mean that I love them any less in that moment. It's just they break my dang heart sometimes. And I think that there are times when we just break the heart of God. I don't think we should ever mistake God's love for us as acceptance of our disobedience. We can never mistake his patience as being tolerant of our sin. Any more than as parents, we would say that we are love our kids, but that somehow that makes us tolerant of their disobedience. I think there are times when we're all capable of grieving the heart of God, and we will all have to one day stand in front of God. And on that day, when we're standing there, what do we do? Where do we turn? What's going to happen? The Old Testament certainly reveals a God that can get angry and vengeful. And a God that always wants justice for those who do wrong. The Old Testament clearly shows God as a just God. How do we reconcile that God with the God that we know? I think that God begins to work this out in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And the word that's used there is a Hebrew word, which means grace. So we can read this, that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the first time that the word grace shows up in the Bible. And it won't be the last, because as man continues to deteriorate and go against God in open rebellion throughout the history of the Bible, it will require more and more grace from God. But grace is a, it's a tough concept for us to grasp. I mean, I've been speaking on the topic of grace for 20 years, and I'd venture to say that those of you who have kind of made all the sermons for 20 years still have confusion about it, because I do too. But it, at, the, at its very core, it means that we do not get what we deserve. Right? So the Bible clearly states that if we go against God, if we're disobedient, if we sin, the punishment for our sin is eternal death. And there is a zero-tolerance policy. Grace means that we receive something that we don't deserve. And we know that Noah didn't deserve God's favor because we later read about his own sin. But nonetheless, Noah received the grace of God in the form of the ark. And so God said to Noah, Noah, I'm going to destroy the earth. So, make yourself an ark. And he gives them the exact wood that he wants them to make the ark out of. He gives them the exact dimensions that he wants it to build it, which, by the way, the dimensions that he was given would mean that the ark was like a football field and a half. I mean, it's no small boat here. It's a big boat. And then God says in verse 17, then I'm going to bring in the floodwaters to the earth, and I'm going to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. I wonder how Noah reacted when he got the news from God that God was just going to take everybody out. 
I wonder if he got sick to his stomach knowing that his family and friends who weren't believers were going to die. I wonder if he tried to argue with God or bargain in order to save the people around him. I mean, how do you deal with that? How, how do you deal with the knowledge that somebody in your life or my life is potentially going to be condemned to hell? That's not our responsibility or place to judge, but to know that there are people in your life that may end up in hell. How do we deal with that? How can a good God throw good people into the pits of hell? How can a good God send a flood in to annihilate mankind? Tough stuff. Very difficult stuff. And as we're forming our faith, this is stuff that we need to struggle with and work through in order to create a belief system that is solid, that doesn't waver. Can't sugarcoat it. So in chapter 7, verse 1, the Lord says to Noah, So go then into the ark, you and your family, because I have found you righteous in your generation. The Hebrew phrase there where God said to Noah to go in the ark is actually not a commandment like it sounds. This is very important because instead it is an invitation where he invites him into the ark. And this invitation suggests that God was just inviting Noah to join him by stepping into the ark. The important thing to understand here is that Noah had a choice. He was not forced. He was not backed into a corner. He could have said, hey, God, I don't want to leave my friends. I don't want to leave my home. I don't want to be trapped on some ark for months with a bunch of smelly animals. I don't want to do it, right? In the same way, that God gave Noah a choice to follow him. True love can only exist if there is free will. So God desires that we love him from our heart, not because we are forced to, but because we have a choice. There is a heaven and there is a hell. And we either decide to accept him and choose heaven, or reject him, and choose hell. And by the way, a no decision is a decision. And even if it's a no decision, there's a chance that that no decision becomes a decision that is irreversible, because it becomes too late. And so Noah, his wife, and his family, they all enter the ark. And the incredible thing is, nothing happens. They all go into the ark, nothing happens. They spend the night and the next day there, nothing. Next day, nothing. I'm sure by this point, you know, the kids in the community are like making fun of Noah and his family, and they're like egging the ark or something. And six days, nothing. Right? I'm sure by this time, Mrs. Noah herself is doubting her husband, going, Honey, are you sure that you heard God right? Are you sure that he didn't say, make us a park? You know, after 600 years, how your ears can just lose your hearing. Are you sure he said ark? For seven days, the sun was shining and the skies were blue. But then in Genesis chapter 7, verse 10, it says, and after seven days, the floodwaters came down upon the earth. Here's my question. Why did God wait seven days? 
Why do you wait to start the flooding? I mean, the ark was built. The family is tucked away and safe. All the animals are in. Why wait? I can only give you my opinion here because the Bible doesn't address it. So this is just my opinion. But knowing the very little bit about God that I know, I like to think that God waited to give everyone else one more chance. Think about it. For seven days, the door to the ark was wide open. Anybody could have walked on. Anybody could have made the choice to get on board. Could God have been thinking, if I just wait one more day, then maybe they'll follow me. If I just wait three more days, then maybe they'll change their minds. There'll be a change of heart. If I just wait another hour. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish. It is not God's heart to want anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. God wants that no one die. But after seven days, nobody shows. And Genesis chapter 7, verse 16 says that finally, after seven days, God shut the door. I believe this is one of the most dramatic verses in the entire Bible. God was not bluffing. He shut the door on the rest of humanity. He shut the door. Look, here's the bottom line. The God of the Old Testament who wiped out mankind in the flood is the same God that is described throughout the scriptures as being a God of justice who is not afraid to punish mankind for their sin. But he is also the same God of the New Testament who is known as God of love and the God of forgiveness and the God of grace. So how do you reconcile that? You reconcile that in the person of Jesus. Between the God of the old and the God of the new stands Jesus. Instead of a flood that wiped the slate clean by wiping everybody out to start over, the cross of Christ wipes our sin away from us and cleans the slate so that we have the ability to start over. Jesus comes on the scene a few thousand years later and he references Noah. And, and I have to tell you, this is an important reference from a couple of them. I'm, I'm always uh, cognizant of fellow skeptics out there, so a couple things about this. Number one, um, Jesus, when he references the story of Noah, he doesn't call it a story. He talks about it as a point in time in history. And so if you are somebody who's thinking that you can get past this story of Noah, the craziness of it, because you can say that it was just a symbolic thing that occurred, 
Jesus brings it back and anchors it and says, this, this happened. Like, this is a literal event that we have to take literally. And so, so yesterday, I'll just tell you, this is like an aside. So yesterday, like, literally, I'm, like, having, like, a little faith crisis going, I'm really having a hard time believing this. So every time that I have a hard time believing something, I always, my, my go-to to bring me back is that I go to videos of atheists speaking. And so I, I watched a little Bill Maher. And so Bill Maher is sitting there with Seth, whatever his name is, the creator of Family Guy, uh, Seth MacFarlane. And so he's completely annihilating and talking about how can an intelligent person believe this stuff? And he, and he references Noah and the Ark, and he's just going off, just belittling the whole Christian thing, and he and Seth are kind of having a little bonding moment. And so he turns to Seth, and he goes, so Seth, you know, we all know about this, that the Big Bang is true, but can you just share a little bit about, you know, how the Big Bang happens? I think he's doing a science show now or something. And so he said, well... Bill, so what happened was we can, we can extrapolate in the way that the universe is expanding and growing. We can extrapolate and go backwards and know that um, I'm only doing this because there's only like 15 of us here today that I can just like go off on this tangent, so if you don't mind. But it is, it is interesting. So he says like, this, like the world was reduced down. If you go all the way back, it was reduced down to the size of a marble. But that marble was so powerful and had such energy that it had the ability to expand. And it just talks about it. And then all of a sudden, the Big Bang occurred. And the universe just started expanding rapidly and rapidly and rapidly. He said, and then the Earth was out there, like, spinning out of control. But then this huge meteor came and hit the Earth and moved it into the orbit so that it now orbited perfectly throughout. And, you know, Bill's going... Yeah, like, everybody knows that. Like, I'm like, are you serious right now? Like, I'm good with knowing the ark, okay? So, anyway, that's my tangent, sorry. <laughs> so, this is, this is what I do to bring myself back out of my skepticism. So, I mean, it, it really is, like, just as, it is just as absurd. Like, there's no level-headed explanation of anything. So you really have to choose, right? For all of you who are skeptics out there like me, you really have to make a decision about what you're going to ground your faith in, what you're going to believe in, and, and go for it. And it's by faith, and the Bible makes that very clear. But I, I really believe that it takes way more faith to believe in atheism and the fact that nothing ever exists. So anyway, Michael's playing the music like the orchestra. It's time to get off the stage. <laughs> Who's got the hook? <laughs> so, to get back to the seriousness of the story, Jesus, um, he, he references Noah as a way to talk about the seriousness of the situation of, of, of God, of, of Judgment Day. And so he says, look, for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking right up until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be when Jesus returns. This is how it will be when the world ends. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken by God, the other left behind. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will return. I mean, how many times have we 
been able to justify whatever the crap is in our lives and the stuff that we're doing, and we go, you know what, I'll get right with God someday before it's too late, right? I'll, I'll make it right. Let me just finish my career. Let me just raise the kids, and then I'm going to get serious. I'm going to get really serious about my relationship with God. But the truth of the Bible is that one day the door will shut. God will shut the door. And his invitation for all of us, for all of us to be saved, will be over. And God wants that not one of us will perish. But he is a just God. And he's not afraid of carrying out the punishment. Because the story goes on. And after the door shuts, the rain comes, and I can't even imagine the people once they realized that it was true. And now it was too late. The Bible teaches that there will be a day of judgment that God has declared. And while it will not, while it will not come in the form of a flood, there will be a day when we will have to give an account for the things that we've done in this life. And make no mistake about it, our God is a God of justice. And he's not bluffing. And on that day, the only thing that stands between me and the God who is the God of justice is Jesus Christ. And the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus is the mediator between us and him. And when we stand there on that day full of sin, full of guilt, full of all the junk in our lives, Jesus stands up and says, it's okay. He's mine. He's accepted the invitation of grace. He's received the forgiveness, and I, I am giving him what he doesn't deserve because I died for him. I've paid the price. Let him enter eternal life. For it is by grace we have been saved through our faith in Jesus Christ. The same God that provided an ark for Noah and his family as a means of escape from his own judgment is the same God who loved the world so much that he gave his only son and allowed him to be killed on a cross so that we can escape the judgment of hell. And the only difference between me and the person that was standing on the other side of the door of the ark when it started to rain is that I have accepted the invitation. I've accepted this gift of grace. And the question is, have you? Have you really done it? We have a God who loves us beyond belief, and he wants that not even one of us will perish. Because the thing that the Bible promises over and over again throughout the entire Bible is that one day, the door will 